Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities, in which we each know one another by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education. Today, we are bringing you another in our series called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the arts and sciences are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world, details of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the decades of disinformation, that's disinformation about psychedelics, and inform the world that prominent, Good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers have risked their careers and their very livelihoods in order to learn from psychedelics while anecdotally advancing science. Anecdotal evidence means you collect a tremendous amount of data it's different from a double blind study where you give one group something and another group a placebo. Anecdotal information is whether you collect maybe thousands of cases of a particular thing happening and that itself informs science. My psychedelic elder guest today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics is author and filmmaker Cliff Ross. I'm gonna spend a bit of time introducing Cliff because he has an exciting and illustrious career. Cliff spent most of the last 40 years of his life documenting, translating, and writing about social and revolutionary movements in Latin America, a topic near and dear to my heart. He has written, edited, or translated a dozen or so books, including a collection of poetry, Translations from Silence, which won the Oakland Pen's Josephine Miles Award for Literary Excellence in 2010. He, uh, Cliff writes for Caracas Chronicles, for Quillette, and blogs at his own website, www.cliftonross.com, cliftonross.com. Cliff has been reporting in Latin America and social and revolutionary movements since 1982, roughly 40 years. For the past decade, he's been traveling to and from Latin America, doing interviews for the book, Until the Rulers Obey, Voices from Latin American Social Movements. Cliff has worked as a translator for the Guatemala news agency, Ceruga. Did I pronounce that correct? I think it's Ceruga in Managua, Nicaragua. 
and in two, 2086, he was doing that. He's continued working there sporadically ever since. Cliff's books of translations include Light and Truth, Manifestos on Interviews on Spirituality and Politics, another one, A Dream Made of Stars, a bilingual anthology of Nicaraguan poetry, Quetzalcoatl by Ernesto Cardinal, on and on, more and more. Here's another one. Interviews and communiques from the Zapatista National Liberation Army in 94. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, boy. And he co-edited with Ben Clark, Voice of Fire, which was the first collection of EZLN material to ever appear in English. A sampling of Cliff's poetry has appeared in the collection When Good Dogs Have Bad Dreams. Have to take that up with my five canines sometime. Uh, his collection of interviews with the poet William Everson appeared in the United Kingdom. Uh, he goes on and on. Uh, by the way, in 2005, Cliff represented the United States in Venezuela's World Poetry Festival. In 2006, he reported from Merida, Venezuela, and began work on his movie, Venezuela, Revolution from the Inside Out. Cliff's book, Fables for an Open Field, was released in Spanish in 2006. Cliff is also, as if he had enough time, uh, a translator. No, this is a book he wrote by himself. It's called Translation from Silence, which won another award, uh, the Josephine Miles Award. It was also published in, in Spanish. In 19, 1997, Cliff completed work on his BA in creative white writing at, at San Francisco State, and he went on to get an MA in English at San Francisco State in 2003. He lives in Berkeley, California with his wife, Marcy Rien, and their two cats. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Cliff. Great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Today, Cliff, we're going to be talking about you as a psychedelic elder, a person who within this extremely prominent career of yours has taken time to investigate certain psychedelic materials. So starting with the top of the interview, how old are you presently? 68. Six, so you certainly qualify as an elder. I think anything over 65. Although I think AARP says 55, but that doesn't seem so old to me from this vantage point. And when you're asked what your occupation is, uh, what do you say? Uh, writer. Writer. Okay. And you're presently living with your wife. Did I pronounce her name correctly? Marcy Rhine. Rhine. Okay. Yes. Uh, Cliff, were you brought up uh, with religion? Yes. More or less, yeah, with a civil religion. I learned it on uh, the Air Force bases growing up. And my family, uh, my father's side of the family were Pentecostal holiness in Oklahoma. There were a few liberal uh, outliers like uh, Southern Baptists. And that was about the extent of the religion. My mother was a Presbyterian. I went to uh, my first experiences with religion off base were at a Presbyterian church. So if you lived on base, it means your father was in the Air Force, correct? Yes. Were you ever stationed, was he ever stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida? 
I don't think so. Not to my knowledge. Okay. I asked that because my dad was stationed in England and I lived off base with my mom. So I ah. thought maybe we might have that. But we do have it in our backgrounds that we both uh, are familiar with that lifestyle. That, that, and it's, uh, the, the brat phenomenon is a, is a very particular one. We, we've, we've gained and lost something uh, very, very particular to our, our segment of the society. Yes. Yes. Um, I had the, I, I was a very, very lucky in that regard, Cliff, because uh, I was the only child on the entire base, uh, however that happened to happen. So I got really treated very well. I got to climb through the belly of bomber planes and, uh, yeah, and, you know, wow. and hang out in the in those uh, those bubble turrets where they sat with machine oh, nice. guns. Yeah, for a little boy, it was it was quite something. What is your present conception of God? I'm working toward uh, non-conceptions. I think, uh, you know, there are the two approaches in theology. They're conceived of as cataphatic and apophatic, the way of affirmation, the way of negation. Um, my own approach right now is much more apophatic toward the negation. I don't really, uh, I don't have a conception of God at this point. Um, I have a, a con I have a conviction, I have a faith, but I don't have a belief per se, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. I understand. And can you remember how old you were when you had your first experience with a mind-altering substance? And that's a very general term. So I'm going to let you decide what you consider a mind-altering substance and and then what? tell me your first experience. Well, my first experience with the mind-altering substance was the one that was most easily available in South Carolina when I was growing up. You could go down to the local gas station and pick up a pack of them for 20 cents. Cigarettes, tobacco, mm -hmm. uh, yes. the, the strongest, most potent hallucinogen out there, the most deadly one also. Uh-huh. The, the one in South Carolina that was probably the most legal. I mean, at the age of 12, I could go down to the filling station. There was a cigarette machine there. I could put my two dimes in the machine and get a pack of cigarettes. And the guy would just look over at me and smile and wave. That was, it was that easy. So I remember, uh, I remember that very clearly going out and uh, having uh, experiences that I thought I would die from. And the world's spinning around, and uh, yeah, it was powerful, potent, potent hallucinogen. You were about twelve, about twelve years yeah. old, Cliff. Twelve. Yeah. Now, prior to that, had you experienced caffeine? No, that came okay. much later. Okay, so nicotine was number one. Absolutely. And it was, and it was powerful. Yes. Uh huh. And. Can you, so you told us the circumstances. You'd go down to the filling station, put your two dimes in, get a pack out. You remember what brand you bought? Camel. Lucky Strike. Camel. Non-filtered. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's Camels and Lucky Strike. I remember the ads for Lucky Strike. It means fine tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they came, and, and we also got them in the rations. So we, you know, the, of course, you, you, you might remember this. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, 
fathers would come home with the rations from the base, the packaged in green, vacuum packed, <clears throat> and you'd open them up and there'd be cans of beans, there'd be bars of unsweetened chocolate and packs of cigarettes. So I yes. think I think actually before I even bought any at the filling station, we found the packs of cigarettes in the, the sea rations that um, yes. our, our parents brought home. And we'd go camping in the backyards at night. You know, we'd set up the tent in the backyard and uh, we'd open up the rations. We'd eat out of the, the sea rations and we'd, we found cigarettes and we'd smoke in the backyard. So I think that was my first experiences with tobacco. So in addition to smoking on your own, it was a social activity. You did it with friends. Yes. Yeah. And you had fun and you laughed. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And following nicotine, what was your next experience with a mind altering substance? Alcohol. That was also easily accessible. We'd hang around the liquor store and get someone going into the liquor store to buy us uh, bottles of cheap wine. And uh, we didn't really know how to drink. We didn't know there was a, an art to it. Uh, we just guzzled it down and would smoke a cigarette in between, chug, you know, chugging a pint, half a pint at a time uh, of uh, really rot gut uh, wine, cheap, cheap, horrible. I think it was called Double Barrel was the name of the wine. Uh-huh. So that was my, and then we would steal from our parents because every, every, Military family, of course, is well stocked with liquor and tobacco um, uh, from the base BX and um, base exchange. And so we would uh, steal, uh, uh, we'd pour alcohol out of the big jugs of alcohol that the par our parents would have. We'd save it over the course of a week. And then on the weekend, we would we'd mix it all together and drink it, split it between us and vomit and pass out that was sort of our friday night it was uh teenage years high school 13 13 13 that 14, young i remember, maybe i remember that cheap wine though i was older when it was introduced to me we used to call it drink and drop wine <laughs> because if you drank a bunch of it you would drop and fall on the floor and then throw up yeah drink and drop cheap wine yes so your introduction to mind-altering substances were the two most available in the United States and perhaps uh, perhaps in the world, yes. cigarettes and alcohol, Yes. right? Yes, and, and then there was a third one that, that Tell me. about the same period of time, of course, every military family also has a well-stocked medicine cabinet, right? Uh, the, 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 you go into the, the doctor, he always prescribes some kind of painkiller, um, because in fact, what is most particular about the military families is they are extremely traumatized and in deep, deep denial about their traumas. I think, uh, there was a book that came out a number of years ago called Military Brats. The, the author, I think her name was Wersch talked about how the military family was constantly being torn out of its community, torn away from its family, from its larger family. It wasn't uncommon for many military kids to have gone to five or six elementary schools, two or three junior highs, four or five high schools. So all their friends, all the friends that they made, they were constantly 
being rotated or constantly being pulled out of their community. So everyone is in a state of anxiety, trauma, and some degree of psychic pain that, of course, the pills uh, were, were there to take care of. And, and, and so the medicine cabinets were full of pills. And so we would, we would steal pills and put them into a little dish and then just take out uh, a few at a time and, and see what they did to us. That was something we did a few times until I, I, one time I got very, very sick and thought I was going, going to die. And who knows, maybe I was on the verge of that. It was a really frightening experience. So I didn't do that too much after that. And was very, we were very much more particular about what pills we actually took out of the med- medicine cabinets. So those were the three major... Three, nicotine, alcohol, and prescription medication. And you were hanging out with other kids whose parents were also in the military. Yes. Right? Your little, little, little group. So, and those are the three most uh, easy to access uh, mind altering substances in the United States to this day nicotine, alcohol, and prescription medicine. Uh, and, and as you are quite aware, we'll probably get a chance to talk more about uh, those are also. Uh, presently, uh, the three mind-altering substances that people in the United States are most in trouble with, right? We have an opioid epidemic, which is a prescription. We have untold numbers. We don't even know how many people are alcoholic, but there's guesstimates that 30% of the population are in trouble with alcohol, and maybe a third of those are in extremely serious trouble. So even if 10%, we're talking 33 million people, we've got 26 million people smoking cigarettes. We have uh, close to 400,000 people dying every year from nicotine, from the results of smoking nicotine. Uh, huge number, huge, huge number, and, and uh, tens of thousands now dying uh, from the opioid epidemic. I think you probably know, many of us know, that for the first time in, 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 in recent history, uh, the longevity uh, rate in the United States is decreasing rather than increasing as a result of these uh, uh, the triumvirate of uh, nicotine, alcohol, and prescription medicine, uh, debilitating. So back to your uh, natural history of mind-altering substances, let's move forward after the prescription medicine and take us forward in your life to what you can remember is the next experience, a fourth uh, mind-altering substance. I remember clearly my friend inviting me into the garage and Rainy Day Women was playing. So that probably locates it around 66, somewhere thereabouts, 65, 66. And he said, hey, have you ever sniffed paint? And so he sprayed a bunch of spray paint in a bag and I huffed the bag and went out, just went into a big buzz with the uh, rainy day women playing. And that got me experimenting with glue and lighter fluid uh, with a group of uh, kids. And we did that for a little while. And that was probably one of the most potent hallucinogens, I, the, the glue and the lighter fluid combination. And fortunately, that period didn't last very long. But but it was definitely one step in my uh, in my process of uh, finding, learning that in fact the world, that consciousness itself was 
a very peculiar thing that I didn't really understand and that I was in only a very, very small band of it, uh, like a radio band. I was only picking up one station and it was, uh, it was the military station, of course, playing the national anthem and uh, broadcast from the base across the highway from where I lived. And, uh, and that suddenly I was able to escape that and found myself uh, in that case at one, one day uh, under a pine tree and becoming a pine tree and actually having some kind of a unitive experience with nature. And that was extraordinary. That was something that I really, I, I suddenly began to long for. I really wanted the experience of connecting. And I think up until then, my life, I had felt very, very disconnected. And suddenly I felt everything sort of coming together in some, some way that I didn't understand. It was the closest thing to a, a religious experience I had was with glue and lighter fluid, strangely enough. Fortunately, that, as I said, I didn't, that didn't last very long. A couple of kids really got in trouble with that and probably did irreversible damage, I suspect. I don't know. I haven't kept up with them, but they definitely were in trouble. Um, and I, but I got out of that quickly, fortunately. Other things came along. Do you happen to recall, Cliff, how you were able to extricate yourself from the use of glue and paint sniffing? You know, I have... I have a, I have a feeling that what happened was, I I don't really remember very clearly, but I have a feeling that what happened was uh, somebody, I think that was about the time that I got turned on to marijuana. I think mar marijuana came along, although in fact around the base marijuana was very very difficult to get. The LSD suddenly because of I suspect because of the MK Ultra plan, uh, program was very very available around the base, but we found marijuana. And that really was something I just loved immediately. I just felt it, it did it. It really took me where I wanted to go. I think at that point, yeah, I lost interest in, in glue and paint. And how old were you when you were introduced to marijuana? What era is that now, please? 1968, 15 years old. 15 years old. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of LSD around, and you mentioned something that I'd like you to tell our listeners a bit about. I'm quite familiar with it. Tell them a little about MK Ultra. Well, the, the government had a program. It was conceived of as a program for mind control. They believed that possibly the um, LSD and other psychedelics might be used to, uh, to control minds and so they were working on a program to to investigate the possibilities of of spraying lsd getting lsd into large parts of the population controlling controlling populations so they administered uh, secretly in many cases lsd to people at at parties particularly in san francisco i think in california it happened quite a bit but I know that around the air base where I was living in South Carolina, there was a massive amount of LSD available in from starting 1968 on through 1970, 71. You say they were making it available to soldiers, uh, air force men on the base or not? I, I don't know. I don't, know. I don't know. All I can say is that, that around the base, there was 
an ample supply of LSD always. Uh, MK Ultra went on for 20 years, and we have hard evidence that the CIA uh, dosed people who did not know that they were being given a psychedelic, a strong psychedelic. And they watched them, uh, videoed them, watched them through one-way mirrors. There was a lot of that uh, going on, and it went on for, for, uh, for 20 years. Okay, so you're introduced to marijuana. Are you still smoking cigarettes at that time? Oh, yes. I didn't. So you're smoking cigarettes. Are you still drinking alcohol? Yes. You're drinking alcohol. You're no longer doing glue and paint. The prescription pills you pretty much let go after the, uh, the incident, the pills, but maybe a little dabbling. But now you're, uh, you, you, you've been introduced to marijuana. Yes. And you're smoking it in what circumstances? Tell us about the, the, where, you, where are you smoking marijuana? In the back seat of a Volkswagen Bug, uh, my first okay. time. Uh, listening to Matchstick Men by, uh, what was that, the band? The, the band. It was that song that, the, that, that was really popular. You heard it everywhere. And it was introduced as part of a whole culture, a cultural phenomenon. And so when you're talking about community, it brought me into a community. It suddenly, I think the break with the, so I, of course, growing up in the military, I grew up extremely patriotic, uh, very, my, my, my dream was to, to join the military and go to Vietnam and kill communists. That was my dream in life. I wanted to be a real man like my next door neighbors, my next door neighbor, my friend, uh, who was four or five years older than me, who went in the Marines and went to Vietnam, came back with a metal plate in his head and paralyzed from a, a, a friendly mortar. And uh, But I wanted to be like him. He was sort of my hero. Um, but somewhere about that time, when my friend came back from Vietnam, I asked my father why, um, why we were in Vietnam, because I, I, when something like that, when that trauma like that happens, you ask why. And my father said, well, we, we have a war economy. We have to keep this war going to keep the economy going. So we've got we've to have a war. And I, I was just, I was shocked. I was, I was maybe 14 at that point. And all my beliefs, I, I suddenly, I, I was confronted with this stark, vulgar reality that this war was only about the economy. It was about keeping the economy going, that we couldn't do better than that. And that people were the, the sons of, and the, and the fathers and the friends were all being sent over uh, and killed and maimed and destroying a country uh, so that we could keep the economy going. And uh, so I, I was suddenly just extremely alienated from my, uh, from the community that I'd been associated with, you know, the, the, the military, the, the base, the, uh, the, the whole military culture. And so when I smoked marijuana, I suddenly was with the hippies. I suddenly found myself in the company of the hippies. And that was my, suddenly, that was my culture. So I had the experience of, of being welcomed into the antithesis. And, you know, of course, it's the, during the Cold War. We're talking about the Cold War, the peak of the Cold War. Maybe not the peak, but it's certainly a high point, high water mark, maybe, of the Cold War. And uh, the world, every the world was polarized. The the everything was polarized. Everything was uh, 
operating in, a, in, in antithesis. So if you weren't with the military, you were with the hippies. If you were with the hippies, you weren't with the military. I mean, everything was it. The, the, that same polarization was happening in this country that was happening in the world between the Soviet Union and the United States. So, uh, yeah, the, the marijuana was the, the welcome home drug for me. I felt like I had found my community, my people, and that was, and yeah, I'd come home. I found my family. Did you graduate from high school? No, I, I was a sophomore for three years off and on. I never finished high school because I discovered another hallucinogen, the one that really I came to love and have a long, long-term relationship with, and that was LSD. And I found, found it so much more of a, an educational experience than anything I was, I was hearing at school or learning at school. And so tell us about tell us about your first LSD experience, please. It was a nightmare and a disaster. I, uh, m my father and I, were by this time having extreme problems. He was a everyone everyone that I knew had a similar situation at home. Uh, today, we would describe it as a, uh, verbally and physically abusive situ uh, situations. At the time, it was just, it was normal. We, you know, being beaten by our parents, being verbally abused, uh, neglected, those things. My father was uh, a master sergeant, and he liked, he seemed to want to run the house like a, the way he ran his uh, unit. And uh, I didn't. I didn't work out to be the the private first class that he was expecting, uh, especially in 1967. By 1967 and 68, I'm you know 14, 15 years old. So at some point, my father came to me after we'd had one really intense fight, and he had he'd had a heart attack. At, at, the age of 34 from the pressure in the military he'd been medically retired and uh so beating me was becoming increasingly more of a challenge for him and also posing a health threat for him so he came to me one day and and handed me two 20 bills and said you know son you can go to live in north carolina at the age of 15 you you, you can do whatever you want there so he gave me these two $20 bills and I left to North Carolina and uh, tried to find work up in Charlotte. And I went to a place called the Inagata de Vida. The Inagata de Vida was a, uh, the, the Inagata de Vida was a uh, kind of a teen club where, um, you know, a lot of music was happening. I think the Iron Butterfly was from that air, Chapel Hill uh, nearby. So they'd play there. And somebody sold me a, a, an eight-way hit of LSD and told me very specifically, be careful, don't take more than one-eighth of this. But on the way home, I looked at it and I thought, it's so small. I'm sure I can do the whole thing. So I took the pill. And of course, we knew nothing. I knew nothing at all about set, setting, or anything like that. Um, I just, uh, I... And so I had a really bad trip. I became very violent. Uh, I 
I went on a rampage and the police were called in and then they came in and beat me up and threw me in an ambulance and took me to the hospital where I was to be sewn up because I had multiple uh, lacerations from putting my hand through a window and um, lots of other things. So that was not a good experience. And I don't remember too much after that. For the next few months, I went into some state. I don't know what it was, but it was uh, it was bad. And then I remember I came out of it uh, when a friend came over to my house one night about, about sunset and asked me if I wanted to do LSD again. And I said, well, sure. And so I sneaked out and we did LSD again. And I was off to the races. I, I started doing LSD at that point every day for uh, the next year or two. So l let's say you're roughly 16 years old now. Yes, 16. And you're living on your own in North Carolina. No, I came home. I was, I, they, I had, came I, had to, I came home. My father, after the out of the hospital, I, my father, uh, brought a shed from the base that he had bought at the base and um, had it put up in the backyard and just said, go out there and do whatever you want, but just leave me alone. He stayed, he, he you know, I came in the house for meals. He, uh, he slept with a gun under his pillow because he didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, we had some kind of a peace at that point, or at least a truce. Can you remember anything, Cliff, about what your thoughts were about your dad sleeping with a gun under his pillow out of fear for you? I didn't know about that until many years later. Thank you. So you're now living in the shed in the backyard and you're taking LSD every single day. Yes. Maybe for a couple of years every single day. Yes. Could you give us any estimation of what the dose was of these LSD experiences? Uh, probably 200 to 300 mics. Okay. For our listeners, two to 300 micrograms is a substantial uh, journey. It's a substantial experience. We're going to talk later in the program about something called microdosing, where you take a very small amount. But 250 to 300 is enough to um, look at a wall and think you see the molecules of the, uh, of the material in the wall melting. Uh, you get a different view of reality. I see you're smiling, so you know what I'm referring to. So two years in a row, 250 to 300 micrograms of LSD. Bring us forward what happens next in your life. I was on, I, I had a death trip one night and I it was at a party. I went outside, I had a butcher knife and I was thinking of, of ending my life. I was 17 and I heard a voice. I heard a voice and, and it, I don't know. It was as those things happen, it's something that comes from inside. So it wasn't in my ears, but it was a very clear voice that in a week I would, I would have an answer to the question of life. And that next week, a friend of mine invited me up to Rock Hill, South Carolina, to meet a couple of people she called Jesus freaks. I didn't know what a Jesus freak was. So I, I was curious. I went with her 
and I uh, became a Christian. I, uh, I became a Christian and I became a fundamentalist because I was in the Bible Belt. There was only one kind of Christianity for people who became Christians there, whatever flavor it may have been. And I became a fundamentalist Christian. And so for the next few years, I went between sort of relapses, you could say, we would probably call that in 12-step programs, they'd call them relapses. But it was a vacillation between an extreme form of fundamentalist Christianity and, and going back to my hippie crowd and smoking pot and, and taking LSD again. So that went on for the next few years. My, meanwhile, my father moved uh, to Oklahoma. I went with my family to Oklahoma. He bought a ranch. That's where he was from. Uh, and we moved there. And uh, that was where I spent my last month as a sophomore, my third go around, uh, and where I dropped out of high school for good. And, um, and, and I lived on a farm for a while um, in rural Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma. Went to trade school, uh, became a small, uh, to, to study small engine mechanics, where I, I managed to get my GED and then was encouraged by the counselor to go on to college because I really wanted to be a writer. So I started college. I went to two years of college, a very stable time in my life. I began to kind of uh, resolve a lot of some problems with my father, although those continued and I finally decided that I, that I needed, I needed to leave and I needed to get out of Oklahoma. I didn't belong there. It didn't, it didn't fit. I didn't fit there. Uh, everybody would ask me if I was from California and so when finally I, I thought, you know, I, if everybody thinks I'm from California, I'm, I've got to go to California and see what California is like. So I ended up hitchhike, hitchhiking out to Berkeley to be part of this, uh, the Berkeley Christian Coalition, which had been the Christian World Liberation Front. It was a Jesus, uh, Jesus commune, but kind of a liberal, uh, radical. Um, they called themselves radical Christians. They were um, Anabaptist-oriented uh, peace-loving, recycling, uh, natural foods-eating, uh, community-oriented um, Jesus freaks. Yeah, uh, they they've been part of an they've been part of a uh, of a uh, a very fundamentalist uh, organization that had had sent them uh, a number of the original people there to as missionaries to the radical youth of Berkeley, and they had become converted to the radical youth of Berkeley. So as Christians, they were... The anthropologists call that going native. You go oh, yes, to yes, natives yes. and you become part of the native group. Yes. You, you're native. So they went native. Okay. So there you are. You're in Berkeley now. You're with this uh, uh, ultra-liberal Jesus-free group. And take us forward. Well, of course, I immediately found my way into the basement of the community house where I was living, uh, where all the drug addicts and alcoholics hung out and and so i i started drinking with them and smoking pot and uh and and found a new freedom in berkeley where you know that wasn't um so sanctioned in the same way that it had been in south carolina and oklahoma i mean just the very fact that i had long hair in oklahoma meant that i was going to be stopped by every policeman in every town that i went into and searched for drugs so being in berkeley and suddenly not being afraid of the of the authorities constantly being uh feeling uh, that i was under surveillance or uh 
and South Carolina, where I, I actually had been part of a group of people that were under surveillance by the uh, the OSI Office of Strategic Intelligence. They they actually did have us uh, monitored, and they made it very clear that they were monitoring us. Suddenly, being in California, where I was able to just along with everyone else reinvent myself and or just move into the culture and lose myself and not be and just be in another anonymous little you know kind of long-haired hippie type um like everyone else um was quite a relief uh, and also being out out of the context of fundamentalist christianity the bible belt um and where uh, drugs were uh still being viewed in um, a more neutral way, although gradually I think that was beginning to change even then. We're talking about 1976 uh, oh, on sure. into the late 70s. Yeah, the Nixon era. So question, how many times roughly do you think you were profiled and stopped because of long hair in the Deep South? Oh, uh, I couldn't count them. You couldn't I, count them? I hitchhiked through... The South. I hitchhiked from South Carolina. I would hitchhike back to South Carolina from Oklahoma to visit my friends, and then yes. from South Carolina back to Oklahoma. And I, oh, I had many, many experiences. A couple of dozen, three, two or three so, dozen times. So my question on that is: Do you think being stopped dozens of times for having long hair? gives you an even deeper sense of empathy for black people or brown people who get stopped merely because of the color of their skin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, kn I know it's the same, not the same thing because I could easily have cut my hair, but there was also something about that. I think that one of the things that is lost on a lot of people today in the revision of the history of the hippies is that many of us in the South grew our hair long and kept it long as a, as a way of identifying with African-Americans and, uh, and people of color who were being harassed by police. With African-Americans. Yes, absolutely. Um, because we, we felt that we wanted to, we wanted to be sure it was a sense of, in a sense, it was a really an act of solidarity. I mean, it was one way of identifying each other. It was definitely part of the costume, you know, of our tribe, but it, but I think in the South, it had an added dimension that to say that we were not racist, that we didn't want, that we were in solidarity with people's struggles for equality and that we should not be, there should be no discrimination against us. Uh, or against uh, or against anyone, and so yeah, absolutely, it was it was an act of solidarity. I think there was there was a racial motivation, absolutely, uh, in the drug war, but I think it was they were it was the, they were casting the net wide. They were trying to get rid of dissidents, uh, dissident elements in the in society uh, that uh, MK Ultra, in large part, had created. And, and that they had created as a result of getting into Vietnam and discrediting themselves uh, in that in that war. You know, Holderman, who worked for uh, for for Nixon, he has admitted publicly that they purposely uh, attacked the hippies uh, and and aimed uh, nightly news at them 
as a way to disrupt the entire movement and as a way to go after black people. There's no question about it. And the drug war really has its antecedents. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get back to you, Cliff. But, uh, you know, the drug, drug war really has its antecedents with Harry Anslinger, the first uh, head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1935, who was a massive racist. He was a, a racist zealot, and he purposefully had Chinese people arrested. He purposefully had black people arrested, and he's famous for, for handcuffing the famous blues singer Billie Holiday to her hospital bed in Bellevue because he thought that her song, Strange Fruit, was about uh, glorifying heroin use. But let's get back to you. You're in Berkeley now, and you're, you're in a more comfortable situation. You're still part of the uh, uh, ultra-liberal Jesus uh, group, but you're also experimenting with various uh, mind-altering substances. Uh, once again, you're using alcohol. You're probably still smoking cigarettes, and you're... And you're uh, experimenting with with, uh, with with LSD. Let's move us forward because time is running on us. Liberation theology came along. I read uh, I read about the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. Um, I, I, I ended up going down to Nicaragua in 1982 and uh, I wanted to be part of that process, the Nicaraguan revolution, the Sandinista revolution. And I came back and by that, at that point I had left the uh, church community. Um, I had been. Uh, I was really involved with uh, liberation theology for a while, and I became very interested in revolutionary movements in Central America at that point through the eighties. Um, so I left at that point. I, I, I was moving away from Christianity very quickly, and um, and I went back to LSD at that point. I really knew there was something there that I I wanted to get in touch with. Um, but all this caught up with me eventually. I, uh, I had a motorcycle wreck in Nicaragua in 1987. I, uh, came back and, um, after a couple, an attempt to, a failed attempt to grow marijuana in Northern California on a farm, pot farm, um, I came back and I, I got into, I got into recovery for drug addiction for marijuana and alcohol addiction, actually. And uh, began working in a twelve-step way with with those things, and that was. Uh, and I began my life became much more uh, productive at that point. And uh, I uh, I I uh, started a print shop. I I was became a printer. Um, we had a print shop uh, here in Berkeley that was associated with the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, we published a voice of fire. That was a book that came out on that I translated and co-edited with uh, my friend Ben Clark. Um, and uh, then I went back to school. At that point, I was in my late forties, and I went back to school and I got my um, my degree, my degrees, and started teaching. And um, was still a political activist at that point. I went to Venezuela because Ernesto Cardinal suggested that I go down there to, to see what was happening there. But when I went, I visited him again the, when I was back in Nicaragua in 2003. And uh, so I went to, 2004, excuse me. So I went to uh, Venezuela 
and began working in the Bolivarian uh, process. And um, travel, and I traveled through South America and did interviews, reported from there um, on revolutionary movements. I I was uh, teaching, I was teaching at Berkeley City College. I was teaching English, and I was uh, and I and I summers I had summers off, so I would go to Latin America. I went to Latin America and over the the Christmas breaks, so I spent most of my free time in Latin America. Um, and I took a year off at one point um, in 2005 and six to live in, in Venezuela. And then I traveled through South America. And in Bolivia, I picked up some San Pedro powder. Um, the, that's a cactus mescaline. Uh, and I, I went back to, um, to Venezuela and I took it in Venezuela and, and remembered what I had been experiencing back in, you know, years before. And I knew there was something there that I needed to investigate further. Um, although it was something that was frowned on by the 12 step movement. So I kept it to myself. And then in 2013, I had a realization that uh, the Bolivarian revolution was a fraud and that I had been deceived. And so had many people in Venezuela and I came back to the United States after doing a lot of investigation while I was there and realizing that, uh, that Chavez had, had uh, actually brought, while oil was at its peak, uh, he had indebted the country. He had borrowed massively to, uh, to fund his social programs, which are a way of getting him reelected and winning elections, and that the country was in dire problems. It was in severe, it was going to be facing severe problems in the future. And I came back and denounced it and was immediately ostracized by the left, the people uh, that I had, and I was no longer allowed to publish any, anywhere that I had been publishing. Um, people no longer wanted to hear from me. So it was a really painful experience. And in 20, and I became very bitter. I put out a movie to, to correct an earlier movie that I had done. Um, which both of which are available on my website for free. Um, my wife and I, uh, Marcy and I, put out a book called uh, Until the Rulers Obey, which was based on a lot of the interviews I'd done with social movement activists in Latin America when I'd been traveling around. And so I did a tour and um, talked a lot about these things. Getting back to the psychedelic, though, I was very bitter. I was very angry, uh, very bitter about my experience with the left. And so I uh, at some point, I, um, I, I, did, uh, I did mushrooms, and I had mushrooms with San Pedro, and I had a very, very powerful experience where I had a heart-opening experience, and I came out of that trip I, um, just really realizing that I needed to do more of this work, that there was something that I had missed when I was doing all these drugs, when I had been doing them as drugs and not as medicines. And um, I got in, I went to a few ayahuasca sits uh, uh, where I did ayahuasca sessions. And then I went to, I did some, a few ayahuasca sessions with the UDV, the Uniao do Vegetal, um, nearby. And um, I did LSD a, a few times. 
um, and, and psilocybin. And as a result of those experiences, and I remember hearing Gabor Mate at a conference that I went to in, in those years in 20, I think 2018, uh, I remember him saying that if you're in recovery and you do these things, you really need to check with your partner to find out what if what impact it's having on you. So I talked with Marcy and I, I asked her, I said, you know, I'm willing to stop doing this. We feel it's uh, interfering with our relationship or having any kind of negative effect on me. But what what impact do you feel see it having on me? And she said, I, I see it opening your heart again. I think it's a really good thing. And she's she also is uh, very familiar with the 12-step processes. And so I trusted that. And I trusted myself. And I found at the same time that I couldn't talk about these things in my 12-step groups. People didn't want to hear about about this. They didn't want to hear about because this this was in that context, it was viewed as a as a drug um, and as just another drug. So that's kind of brings us up to the present, uh, squeezing about 20 years into that little uh, that part. Um, and it's that's that's kind of what's what's been happening with me. I mean, I, I've discovered a, a group called Psychedelics in Recovery, where other people in 12-step programs uh, get together and talk about the use of entheogens or psychedelics in their recovery process, uh, recovering from drug addiction. I can say that today I'm free of marijuana, of alcohol, and of tobacco. I've been free of tobacco for uh, 25 years now. I haven't had a drink for um, 15 years. And um, it's been a number of years uh, since I've had uh, smoked pot. Um, what what what, you, what so kind of comments do you want to share with us? That kind of catches us up. Yes, it does. And thank you. I want to ask you about the difference between using LSD daily for two years early in your life, significant dosage, but basically not knowing what you were doing and possibly using the LSD, if you will, as a drug. And then later on, using the very same substance as a medicine. So give us a little commentary on the differences between this very same substance as a drug and as a medicine. Well, as anyone who knows anything about LSD could tell you, uh, if you do LSD two, d- two days in a row, you're not going to get off the second day, really. Uh, what I managed to do in those two years was stay in a state of uh, uh, probably some kind of state of disconnected, uh, some disconnected state. I wasn't tripping, uh, but I was using it as a drug. I, I, was, uh, I didn't realize that I was trying to deal with trauma and I was trying to learn, I was trying to cope with it. It wasn't very effective in that way, of course, um, but it was just one of anything that I could get my hands on to numb out and to, you know, I think Ralph Metzner, Metzner really clarifies this when he talks about the, the, um, the altered states of addiction and transcendence, both of them being tra- uh, altered states, but, but they are at 180 degrees in opposition to each other. Addiction is when you are your focus is narrowed and you can only think about one thing, and that's usually the the drug that you're taking. 
transcendence is when your 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 vistas are opened up, your conscious, your your area of focus is is broadened, and you you are able to think about many many different things. Your your under your your vista, your 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 perspective is has, is altered in such a way that you're able to see much more broadly. When I you know in the sixties in in the South. There was very little talk of set and setting. I don't think I even heard that term until really uh, I got back into in theogens in uh, 2017. I really didn't even, I, I discovered when I did that, in fact, people had been talking about this back in the 60s. In fact, actually back in the 50s. But when I, and then as I get, as I began to look at LSD and uh, entheogens, psychedelics as medicine, um, I, my way of using them has totally changed. It's not, it's, I don't even think of them as drugs anymore. I think of them as, yeah, medicines. There, I have no compulsion around using them. I don't use them very often. In fact, it's been quite a while since I've used them, anything. Um, but when you're using them as medicine, you, I heard someone say the other day, she thinks of the use of psychedelics as spiritual surgery. You don't need to do surgery every day. You don't need to do surgery every week and hopefully not even every month. As an addict, my tendency is to become extremely focused. Um, I think there is something physiological about addiction and, and it really does change what a person is, who a person is. And I think that, that one wonderful medicine that I found, the most incredible medicine for helping correct that condition um, that Bill W. used, uh, in fact, to correct his own when he was going through a, a period of spiritual aridity, you know, where he was in a desert, a spiritual desert, he discovered LSD. And he actually proposed it um, as a, uh, something that should be used as part of the 12-step uh, program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was, uh, he was voted down by the board. But um, yes, and and so, uh, but 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 he proposed it, and I think um, possibly it was a good thing that he was voted down. I think it's better to because not everyone is is going to find this medicine helpful, um, but many of us in the uh, who are drug addicts or alcoholics. I was going to say there is hard research. Yeah. It came out of uh, London, I believe, before LSD was made illegal, uh, where there was success treating alcoholism with uh, with LSD. And uh, now that we're having a renaissance and science is coming yeah. back and being allowed somewhat, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about uh, medical and beneficial and psychological uh, positive effects of these substances. Are you familiar with microdosing? Yes, yes, I've, I've tried that. Any yes. comments? Uh, well, I think it would be great if you had some condition that would require uh, that as 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 a medicine, I I'm not don't have a problem with depression. Uh, I don't have mostly I don't have much of a problem with anything. I find when I use entheogens, I use them in larger amounts uh, to to break blocks as spiritual surgery. Um, I had a, a a writing block a year ago um, as I was writing my first novel. I just I'm in the process of finishing it. Uh, I hadn't been able to put down a single sentence. 
and I did a large dose of mushrooms and understood why, where the block was from and was able that the next day using some shamanic drumming work and so forth, uh, the day after this, uh, it broke. And within two weeks I had had, I had a, uh, an 80,000 word first draft. So, um, so it, it was very effective. Yeah, it was very effective, but that, but, uh, that's what I use it for. When you say a large dose of yes, mushrooms, five, five grams, five grams, that's important for listeners to know five grams. Thank you. I wanted to tell yes. you a few things personal that uh, that I resonated to in your story. In 1959, I went to Cuba to join Castro and, and uh, Che Guevara in the revolution. So I, I shared that uh, that interest with you. Uh, che Guevara oh. said to me, I was 18 years old and a junior in college at the University of Illinois. And um, Che Guevara said to me, do you know what I did before I was a revolutionary? And I said, yeah, you were a medical doctor. He said, well, get your ass back to school and get your doctorate before you go on with these adventures. <laughs> so I did. I left uh, Cuba Great. and I went back and, and got uh, several more degrees. Uh, as you know, both of our fathers were, uh, you know, were in the military. We both lived off base. I was a bit more fortunate than you, or probably a lot more fortunate, in that my dad was a colonel and uh, I guess more highly educated. So hitting children was already, you know, not in his uh, in his worldview. So uh, you know, I didn't suffer that uh, that particular uh, you know abuse. Uh, we also both have suffered uh, serious motorcycle accidents that were, uh, in my case, life-changing and possibly yours as well. So I just thought I'd, I'd share those things with you for as we get to know one another. You went from your first mind-altering substance, nicotine. You took us through a series, your first LSD trip or experience was horrific. So was mine, by the way. And I felt the same way about it afterwards that you did, I couldn't wait to do it again because I knew that the world had opened up in a different way. And, and even though the, the, the difficult stuff was just stuff that I had to learn how to deal with, uh, I knew there was a new world of discovery there. Uh, and now you're, you, you just uh, you know, came to the end of your wonderful story telling us how that's a terrific ending. We should, I should have ended right there, actually, but I, I, I just love talking to you. Uh, telling us how you have a writer's block. You can't get a word on a page. You take five grams of psilocybin mushrooms, and in two weeks, you turn out 80,000 words. I mean, what better ending to the story do we have than that? So let me, let me say thank you so much, Cliff, for joining us today, for being part of this series, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders, and for being with us. I look forward to getting to know you in the future. As you know, I invited you and, and, uh, and Marcy and Charlie and, and his wife and, and child. We will all uh, hang out together uh, up on our little farm. And, and thank you all, uh, our listeners. Thank you. For joining us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics with special thanks to our producers, Charlie J Deist and Evachesca DeAngelis, our marketing director, Pamela Bieri, our guest curator, Michelle McMillan, and our new IT specialist, David Springer. 
welcome aboard David, all of whom are working together as a team to make this broadcast possible. This preceding program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, was brought to you by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Kassif, is a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world, especially in South America, where Cliff Ross has been spending a great deal of the last 40 years. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends, and he donates 20% of all internet sales of these three special blends to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. Check out the COVID Response Network on the Google. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy some mind, body, health, and politics coffee, and support the COVID Response Network, which literally is sparing injury, saving lives, and serving as a model for other community-based health programs. Please join me next Tuesday, once again, at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.